And if you are able, will you please stand with me as we read God's word together? We'll be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the, the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the to the thick darkness where God was. You may be seated. Thank you, Eric and Alex. A wonderful to see. Thank you for serving our church so well. We find ourselves once again in the Decalogue, which is a fancy word for for ten words, or as we might better know them, the Ten Commandments. That why are they so important? Uh, many reasons why, but they, they summarize really uh, what it means to follow God faithfully. Remember in Matthew 22, the man comes, say, what, what's it going to take? And Jesus says, well, to love God and to love your neighbor. And if you look at the Decalogue, the first four commandments are very much about God being supreme in our lives, the one true God and worshiping him correctly and the subsequent six commands about loving our neighbor. How do we love God and love our neighbor? More importantly, I think, often overlooked, is it really is the basis for modern, um, liberal, lowercase l, uh, democracies. That anchored in this, you're walking around Washington, D.C., and you see these things etched, you're like, you know, what, what's this have to do with things? You'll notice that they, they're anchored in respect for property and respect for human persons. And I think all wise and advanced governments, uh, you know, are wise to follow that pattern. So the Ten Commandments, vital for how God's people are to live and act. 
And before I get any further, I'm, I'm gonna, you're, you're going to say, he said that last week, and I'm going to say it many, many more times before we're through with Exodus. Notice the order. Take a look again at, at 20 verse 2 and then 20 verse 3. Just the order there. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The order is redemption, then law. You say, well, why again is he stressing that? Because the fallen human mind and all other world religions work from law to redemption. They say, I want to know the rules. Give me the rules and let me try to, you know, get to God on my own terms. If I can climb myself up by obeying the laws, maybe, hopefully, at the end of the day, I can be redeemed. Say, the Bible is very different, right? The, the Bible says, no, you're never going to be good enough. That Israel wasn't selected because they were the greatest any more than a Christian is selected because he or she is good-looking or something uh, like that, but rather it's anchored in the grace and kindness of God. That he brings the Israelites through the sea, establishes them as his people according with his promise that they could not extricate themselves, they couldn't redeem themselves from the hand of the Egyptians. He establishes them and then gives them the law. That in light of that then, the law becomes a gift of God's grace. You say, wait a second, did he say that? The law is a gift of grace. You say, yes, the law is a gift of grace. Why? Because it reveals God's good character and is going to mold his people, right, to mold the members of this church that as we come under God's word, we come under him and allow him to shape us, he will mold us into the people he wants us to be that his kingdom might advance. You say, this is the same pattern as the gospel, right? You say, what, what's the great proclamation of the gospel? That God has put forth Jesus on his own initiative. That God's the architect of salvation. That he's given us the gift of repentance and the gift of faith. He's rescued us and justified us out of his own character. And then he sanctifies us and molds us into more mature believers. You see how that works? It's redemption and then the shaping. The same pattern as Exodus. I've brought you out. Now this is how you're to live. And this law is indeed a grace. Now today we will look... One verse, the third word of grace, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I think at the first level, we, we do well to say, does this have to do with uh, taking God's name very casually and using foul language? And I think this will just begin to get us a start to, if we can position ourselves culturally to think about where we've come from and where we find ourselves on this matter. You know, I remember very clearly, I was in middle, you know, my sister and I were in middle school thereabout, and my parents really wanted uh, us to watch Gone with the Wind as a family, and my sister and I were less than thrilled to be watching a film from 1939, and uh, my parents as uh, kind of dangled the carrots, and this is what they did. They said, there's a very, very controversial line in this film. There's a real bombshell in this film, and you won't believe This created such a stir, and, and so my sister and I said, okay, we'll, we'll watch it then. So we're sitting through a very long film, which I know is a great film, uh, but at that point, you know, we didn't think it was a great film. And, and you, you get to the scene, and Scarlett O'Hare comes running down the steps, you know, what shall I do? Where shall I go? And Rhett Butler says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a... And uh, my parents said, there it was! And my sister and I look at each other and say, that was it? That was a line? That's the word? But my parents were right. Say, you didn't say that word. You didn't write that word. Because some things were off limits. There were sacred things. There were things that 
they realize that when they're in the public forum can cut to the heart of a person and begin to deteriorate us. And you say, well, what about now? How easily we put up with and probably even ourselves throw out slang words for various bodily functions. In fact, it's become quite fashionable. I mean, I was interested doing research this week about, you know, can we, can we track profanity? Has it increased even in recent decades? And much to my, well, not, not surprising was that it has increased. A bit surprising is that it's, it's championed. That all the headlines say profanity, of course, on the rise, but, you know, this is a very good thing because it's cathartic. That, in fact, we should have more of these words for bodily functions and, and curses because it allows us to kind of feel good. And, uh, in fact, let's, let's keep going. And we can see not only is it these foul words for bodily functions, not only has it become fashionable, and not only is it being advanced, I mean, let alone the name of God. They were long past any kind of taboo about using the name of God casually. And you see what's happening, don't you, with the comedians? I mean, I don't, I don't follow comedians, but sometimes, again, I'll, I'll read the news. You see, the way you make it as a comedian is the shock value. So you, you're putting, the, you say, well, there, there is a, an end to that game, right? I mean, there's a clear end point. You can only shock so many. A lot of these comedians, even by their own standards, have crossed the line, right? They're trying to be more and more absurd, more and more foul-mouthed. And so, friends, ours is an age, and let's be honest, ours is an age that is very profane uh, by even our own modern history. It reminded me very much of the line in Jeremiah 6.15, right? Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Then famously, right, they didn't know how to blush. Are we a people that's forgotten how to blush? There's nothing off limits. No language too foul to say, to take in. Does any congregation actually think about these types of things anymore? Well, I, I hope so, because here it is. It's God's good gift to us to say, be careful how we use the name of the Lord. And today, what I hope to do in these upcoming moments is to show it's not just cursing and saying uh, other languages, uh, other use of words for bodily functions, but actually this commandment is going to... Uh, Really, it penetrates every area of our life. I hope to unpack that today. So first, let's begin with this idea of the name. So look at verse 7 again. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. As Shakespeare questioned, right, in Romeo and Juliet. What's in a name? So the way we name children, not I get to name two sons. I must tell you, I didn't, I didn't put a whole lot of stock in what their names meant. Uh, we went by, you know, my older son, Graham, named after the evangelist, Billy Graham. I took little note that his name means something like one who dwells in the woods. Now, I have my moments. I, I have my moments where I'm like, I wish that, you know, we're going to make him true to his name here. No, he lives in the house with us. Uh, but we, the way we think about names is not like it used to be. Or how about, you know, we just called Pastor Dennis. You know, Pastor Dennis, I looked up, one who follows Zeus. Now, I assure you, Denny is many things, but he is not a follower of Zeus. And so you see that names are, are uh, a little bit different than, than the way they were in the Hebrew Bible. And you'll see that the name of God is very much connected to who he is. So do you know that God has a name? You say, well, we, we call him God, but do you know God has a personal name? We we saw it back in Exodus chapter 3, remember? Moses says, how in the world are you going to do this, God? I mean, liberate these you know, million people out of the hand of Pharaoh. How are you going to do this? And God says, tell him my name. And he says, I am 
say I am in Hebrew is the word Yahweh, at least so we think that really the way that it's come down because of how sacred it was, it is, is just the consonants Y-H-W-H. It was so holy that even the, the Hebrew grammarians and the, the rabbis in later centuries, right, that they wouldn't write it. They just say Adonai. No one really even knows how it sounded, but God revealed himself as Yahweh. It's his personal name. And our English editors have helped us. You, you'll notice again, turn, turn attention back to verse 7. You'll see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The English editors have helped us say, where you see that Lord in all capitals, that's Yahweh. And Yahweh means the self-existent one, the one upon whom all else depends, that my ability to speak this morning, your ability to think, to move into this room, is not because of our own ability, but because of the one who is the all-sufficient maker, right? That when we think about the name of God, it's, it's really attached to who he is. And you have a lot of language then. You say, if you think about it that way, there's a ton of language in the Bible where, where you read things like in Ezekiel 36 where God saves on account of his name. You say, well, why is it phrased that way? Why? Because God is the one who's going to, he makes all things happen, so he's saving to, to vindicate his own name, as Romans 3 says, right? God's doing this to demonstrate his glory, right? In his theater of glory, to use that great phrase from Calvin, the world is God's theater of glory, that he's accomplishing things so that his name might be put on display, you think of that Lord's Prayer. Say we've said it hundreds of times. Hallowed be your name. Set apart as holy be your name. The name of God is attached to who God is. So to put it negatively, to casually throw around God's name, to um, profane his name, to use it as the word vain means, to use it in an empty nugatory way is really an assault on the character of God. So uh, that's point number one. God's name is connected to, he is, uh, to who he is, not the way we na usually name people now. The name's saying something about God, so when we throw it out there, we ought to be very careful, knowing full well that the faculty of speech is a result of his grace. Okay, secondly, behind us, maybe an obvious point, we could take it for granted. Behind this command is the fact that God's people are a speaking people. You remember last week on the idols, uh, do you remember? So all the other ancient Near Eastern religions would have idols, and it was a way of controlling their gods. They kind of, of course, they're not real, so they'd bring them down. And in a place like Deuteronomy 4, what you'll read is you see all the other nations make gods with their own hands so they can see them, but those idols never speak. You say, you've been to eastern countries, you'll notice that this phenomenon. They have the gods pictured, but the gods don't speak. The great move of the Hebrew Bible is to say God can't be confined to a little image. You say you can't bring him down and make him in your own image, but our God does speak. It's, a, it's an incredible pivot from the way all other religions had worked, right? That our God is a speaking God, and he's given us his word. You say, why do I say this? Because I, I sometimes, it's, the quote is misappropriated. It, it, there's no way Francis of Assisi, no, no record of Francis of Assisi saying this. Tell me if you've heard this. I really don't like this quote, and I mean that kind of, if you've said it to me, I'm not, I'm not mad about it. But I, I think it's really problematic, and it's this. Preach the gospel 
and where necessary, use words. You see, I can think of nothing that goes further against the grain of, of our God, who's a speaking God, who the crown of his creation, right? It doesn't matter if you're a materialist. Materialists will agree that the faculty of speech, the complexity of speech, the ability of homo sapiens to use their mouths to think deeply,
that we're not always quick to admit. Our, ours is one that's also built on, on oaths. You see, oaths are how you got business done in the ancient world, and still we use oaths for a related word, a vow. Say, where, where is it most prominent? Well, I think in the Christian, in the Christian wedding ceremony. You say, it's, it's called a vow, it's called an oath, and we come up here and we say, well, you know, by God's help, I'm going to... You say, how serious in light of this commandment does your covenant of marriage uh, seem? Say, I think pretty serious. They say, we're the, I swear to God, I'm going to... Say, that's serious. It's using the name of the Lord in vain to something that if I don't have any intention of following it through on it, say, I think that this God's saying that this is real trouble because we're defaming his name. We're bringing him down to our level to kind of get business done, so to speak, but we have no intention of realizing who he is and his, his loftiness. And so taking of oaths casually, swearing in God's name, uh, as we can often do, I think is a caution here. Now, what about in the public sphere? And I, I was reading this week uh, uh, some decisions by Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, surprisingly involved with the removal of of religion from the schools. Now, I, I don't know, I'm sure Justice O'Connor was a, a fabulous jurist, but I was fascinated by this, because she's asked, she said, why in all of our pageantry, you know, we had a new president or something, and they put their hand on the same Bible that Lincoln's hand was on, and say, why do we do this if we don't want God anywhere else? Why do we have God featured so prominently? Listen to what Justice O'Connor said about including God in oaths. They're okay because they serve, quote, legitimate secular purposes of solemnizing public occasions, expressing confidence in the future, and encouraging the recognition of what is worthy of appreciation in society. So you see, what is Justice O'Connor saying? Say, well, we kind of like God involved in the mix, uh, but he's just involved in so far as he can serve our secular ends. I think this is exactly what God's saying. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful taking oaths and using the name of God for our own interests. And this also comes, you know, we'll keep going a bit on this, but how about, you ever know people, they say, God, God told me X, and what X is is really what they want to do. You know, some, you know, somebody will come to me and say, God told me today, pastor, that I'm supposed to preach. To which the preacher says, well, God didn't tell me anything. Um, so when you say, God told me that I'm going to, achieve this level in business or god told me that i'm gonna do this or do that you say is that really the case or is it an example of taking his name in an empty fashion prediction of end times say bible's very clear we can't know when christ will return again but how many times we turn and say okay god has given me a word that he's going to return on this day you say what that does is it smears god's name it discredits god's name because then that date comes and goes, and people are like, well, some God they hear from. I mean, how inaccurate is that God? Say, no, God's given us his word that we're to be under his word, right? Not manipulative of his word, but to sit under his word. I want to tread delicately on one more here, if I may. Um, matters of healing. When I'm ill, when my loved ones are ill, when there's an ill person in this congregation... I pray. God is sovereign over our bodies. I've seen times, sometimes on that radiology exam, there's a, a tumor, and then a few weeks later, you know, we pray as an elder team, and there's nothing on the, uh, on the screen, and you say, God has, has healed this person. 
where it becomes very serious is when you have bad theologians. You have bad theologians saying something like this. God would heal you if you just had enough faith. Say, well, I don't know what Bible that's out of because I have watched very dear saints suffer under debilitating illnesses. And the answer isn't that they lacked faith, meaning that it was a human-centered system and somehow they didn't try hard enough, but rather God in his good time has called that person home. Hence why all Christians grow frail and decay and become weak. So again, is, yeah, if anybody walks away and says, if I'm ill, Pastor Shaw won't pray with me, please, I, I, I pray, I pray, I do. Please, heal. Lord, if it, if, if it is your will, heal. We do it at my, my kitchen table with parishioners. As elders, we pray that God would heal. But sometimes he doesn't. In his good sovereign plan, he takes a saint home. And so we have to be careful with our language and using the Lord's name in vain in a way that would discredit him and discredit the plain teaching of the Bible. And maybe just one more again. I, I, I lied. You see that? You say I lied. Just that simply. I, I've broken a commandment. So I do, did I say one more last time? I meant one more now. Um, um, uh, God sent that hurricane into South Florida because we all know what goes on down there. Friends, if that's the game, if that's the game that God wipes out the sinners, we're all in real, real big trouble. And what happens when we say that is that we can not only misuse the name of the Lord, but also discredit his name among the non-believing community. What's the point of this? The point of this is to say that there's a point in the third commandment to say that we're all theologians, we all speak about God, and we should do so accurately and very carefully. And I, I just like to read, uh, to me, a very scary, very scary portion of scripture here to think about this week. Jesus in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of evil treasure brings forth evil. Now, this is the verse, you know, I wish I could do a Thomas Jefferson on here. This is the one that would get the exacto knife, okay? I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. That's a pretty terrifying line. Every careless word. Say, what chance do I have? So points we've made, God's name is connected to who he is. To throw his name around casually is really an assault on, on him. God values accurate speech from his followers. We need to be good students of our, his word to put ourselves, again, under, under his word. How countercultural, right? That we're those, the Bible has a functional authority over our lives that we come under it, and that determines, right, how we can speak accurately about him. And finally, that I think that this commandment also judges our hypocr hypocrisy. That if the command, or what we just talked about, you say what we just talked about was something where we can be acting the right way but saying the wrong things, this is just the opposite. You say, well, we can be saying the right things but acting in a contrary way. 
uh, we call this uh, hypocrisy. It comes from the word actor. And you say, this is much more dangerous, and it's a little bit easier. Say, so those of us say, okay, we can read the Bible. We know the slogans. I can toss the slogans around. I'm not going to predict end times. I'm not going to make an utterance about healing. I can say the right slogans. But in the meantime, my lifestyle undercuts everything that I say. In a way, is that not using the name of the Lord in vain? You say, I talk a big game, but I have no intention of really following. I'll call him Lord, Lord, but I'm disobedient. You say, the third commandment comes right into that. And that, by the way, you say, I'm very careful. I don't put bumper stickers on my car. You say, I'm really asking for it going down Detroit Road there, right? You say, oh, look at that pastor. He's going, you say, well, that, that is uh, uh, on, a, on a large scale, right? You say, if there's a pattern in my life, of being deliberately disobedient as standing up here and speaking and being disobedient that this is I think to a violent way of using God's name in an empty fashion and, and you might be thinking now say well how is this you know what, what good does this do his people and I think on that account you say when we adopt a double life either you know speaking incorrectly or living incorrectly in conjunction with what we profess you say that double life gets very very tiring and I think in these first three commandments, God's laying out, he says, you worship me rightly. Don't worship to man-made things. Revere my name. Come under my word. And when there's that singularity in a life that there is, in fact, great freedom and great purpose. So one final point uh, today that we'll have time for you. You'll notice that like the second commandment, that this commandment comes with a motivation. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Say, there's the word, isn't it? Guilty. I think a universal human phenomenon, you can even see now in some of our secular debates, how the categories of guilt and reparations and things like that are leaking in, because guilt is almost a, a universal thing. And you're thinking back on your life, as I'm thinking back on mine, and how I've been way too casual with the Lord's name and how I've allowed things into my mind and even delighted in those things that are dishonoring to my Lord that I've called to be an ambassador and what a poor ambassador I've really been. A story I take no delight in telling. But, uh, you know, at, at Oxford there are colleges and each college has a different name in the quad. And one of those Oxford colleges is called Jesus College. And I remember very clearly one night, some of my friends had been out all night and uh, thought it was very funny. They had a good laugh that uh, there was an act of public urination on Jesus College and they were joking about it there in the college that they had expletive, you know, urinated on Jesus. And I don't tell this story because they say, well, aren't those bad blasphemers? But you know what I did? I did nothing. And you know I did nothing because I'm a man pleaser because I love myself and I look after myself. And that's why, that's why I take such confidence in the completed work of Jesus because I stand on this matter and every other matter in the category of guilty sinner, self-interested sinner, casting God aside. You say, but God knew that we wouldn't be able to fulfill this and put forth his son Jesus. He says, we all need him. Every idle word's going to be taken account of. Who, who wants to stand up and say, every word, every word, I'm good. 
say it's a universal condemnation on sinful humanity for looking out for ourselves. But God says, I've demonstrated to you what kind of God I am. I've put forth Jesus. Come to him. Repent from your sin. Turn to him. You can be washed in his blood. You know, Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he had a name for himself later in life after he was converted. He called himself the old African blasphemer. You say, Shaw, that old blasphemer, or whoever it might be, can be washed, that sinners can turn. And I ask you, say, you're not a Christian here today, and you read this line here about guilt. You say, maybe even beyond using the name of the Lord in vain or uttering profanities, but you see guilt. How do I get out from underneath this guilt? You say, well, today's, there's very good news. There's a great proclamation today. God sent his son the eternal son of God, put him forth in history. Say, well, is this just another pastor going off about in philosophy? No, he put him down into history. And his blood flowed on that cross so that all would turn to him, surrender their life to Jesus, acknowledge him as Lord, acknowledge that we need him, that we can't live up to this standard. No person can. That we can surrender to Jesus and have confidence in him to be reconciled to God, to have hope and a clean slate because being weighed down by guilt is debilitating. And Christian, this for me, are we putting the second, or excuse me, the third commandment positively? Let's be those who speak accurately and reverently about God. Maybe this is a time to check the kind of content I'm taking in, or if I've been too casual with my words. And there can be today a recalibration to say, this old commandment? Maybe we would be those again, a, a, a culture, a subculture, as a congregation of those who would blush. A God's people who would blush who'd see his name high and lifted up, and dare we say, hallowed, hallowed be the name of the Lord. So I'll call Jim and the team back up. Father, thank you for this third commandment, and help us to see that it is a grace that is aligning our lives correctly under you. And Father, I know that I, I am guilty of misusing your name and not representing you well. I've taken things into my mind and my heart that are not of you. And Lord, thank you for this fresh promise that we always come back to in, in Jesus that say no, no person has a perfect record here. I, this is why you have adopted us as sons and daughters. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's weighed down under guilt, I know in a room this size, there's somebody just, the, the guilt is overwhelming. This idea of thinking of our past and shaking our fist at you and going our own way, the tremendous guilt. Say, wouldn't it be great if there's a message that I could be liberated and made new and have a fresh start? And we see that in our Lord Jesus. I pray that that person would, would give their life to you. Lord, for those of us, again, as a congregation, that we would take these commandments seriously, that we, that we would see how we can fulfill them by the, your Holy Spirit and that we would be different. Again, this would be an opportunity to be different as your people. May Christ be lifted high. Amen.